0: I'm going to go to Brenda's case.
1: This is a 55 year old female who presented at age 46, premenopausal at that time, with a stage 1 breast cancer that was palpable, 1.7 centimeters. It was strongly ERPR positive, and she had 22 negative nodes. At that time, HER2 was not done. She was treated by another oncologist with a lumpectomy. AC times four, radiation therapy, and then five years of Ferriston. She initially had been started on tamoxifen, but had a lot of hot flashes with that, and he switched her to the Ferriston. So she had the five years of the Ferriston. Six months after she had finished that, she came to see me for the first time, and I offered her Femara, but she chose not to take it and basically didn't come back. Sixteen months later, she came back complaining of a paresthesia kind of pain that she'd been having for about 15 months in the t 4 to T10 dermatome. She had recalled having zoster in that dermatome during her radiation therapy six, seven years ago, and she had gone to pain management. People, they'd done an MRI. They didn't see anything wrong. They'd done nerve blocks, which had only temporarily relieved her pain. By the time I saw her, she said she really couldn't even lay down on her back for more than a few minutes without being in pain. And I said, well, that's unusual for this to be cancer, to wax away like this and not go anywhere else. And it didn't sound really like it was going to be cancer. But I said, we really need to do another MRI, which really required general anesthesia to get her to lay down flat in order to do the MRI. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, that did show extensive bony mets, no cord compression. She did have some soft tissue involvement around T7. She did get restaged at that time with a CAT scan, and she had very small pulmonary nodules as well. We did biopsy the T7 lesion. It was markedly ER-positive, moderately PR-positive and HER2-negative. We treated her with femar and Zometa. Her pain resolved. She was very functional. Tumor marker fell in half, and her pulmonary nodules shrunk at her four-month CAT scan.
0: And I guess, Eric, it's worth noting here that this is a woman who recurred in the post-tamoxin five-year window who was node-negative originally.
1: Right. right. She was 22-node-negative, 1.7-centimeter well, primary. So after... Less than a year of hormonal therapy, a follow-up routine CAT scan showed new liver mets, which, again, I was kind of surprised at with what seemed to be very indolent disease prior to that. So I did biopsy her liver to see if it truly was a HER2-negative tumor, and it still was, and it was still ER-positive. We gave her FASODEX with a loading dose. Within a month, she was having nausea, malaise, liver pain, and increased LFTs and so then i got kind of scared and said we need to do some chemotherapy.
0: So this is the situation we've just been talking about a patient with an er positive tumor actually delayed relapse
2: who now seems to have accelerated visceral disease how would you be thinking it through eric? So time for chemotherapy. And like many of you in terms of my first and second line choices in this setting i typically either use capecitabine first or paclitaxel plus bevacizumab first, and I use the other one second. If I'm going to use bevacizumab, given the results of the ECOG trial, I typically use it with a taxane. Here, I want to use my best regimen at the moment. And I think that without bevacizumab, one could argue that all single-agent chemotherapy is about the same and that capcitabine and paclitaxel are probably similarly effective. I think we know from the ECOG trial that bevacizumab adds to the benefits that you get with paclitaxel. And so this is a woman who I would probably treat with weekly paclitaxel and bevacizumab. And I would, outside of a trial, tend to use the regimen that was given in that ECARC trial.
0: Can you comment a little bit on the data that we've seen with capecitabine and bevacizumab, particularly that was presented the Excalibur
2: study by George Sledge at ASCO? Well, the background for this is that, of course, Kathy Miller's study that was presented several years ago with capecitabine in patients who had previously been treated in the metastatic setting suggested that capecitabine plus bevacizumab wasn't substantially better than capecitabine, at least in terms of time to progression and overall survival. There was about a 10% improvement in response rate. Then, of course, there was the ECARG trial, and the question that came up after the ECARG trial is why was there benefit in that study, and there didn't seem to be as much benefit in the capecitabine study and Kathy Miller's previous study. I guess they're both Kathy Miller's studies, so it gets a little confusing. But why was there more benefit in the first-line paclitaxel study versus the capecitabine study? And there are a few choices. One is that it's a chance finding. The second is that it relates to the drug that you give bevacizumab with, and the third is that it's the setting or whether it's first line versus later. I don't think we have an answer. But then this year, we had the results at ASCO of the so-called Excalibur study, which was a phase two trial of capecitabine and bevacizumab in the first line setting. And that was presented by George Sledge. There's only so much you can learn from a phase two trial and trying to compare that phase two trial to two other randomized trials done several years previously. But I think that what was notable about it was that the combination didn't strike one as being particularly impressive in terms of either response rate or time to progression. There was some suggestion that perhaps the therapy was more active in patients with ER-positive versus ER-negative disease, but that's a subset, and it might have arisen by chance, and there may be all sorts of different factors at play there. So it's made me hesitant about using capecitabine and bevacizumab together outside of a trial, and it's why I really would choose to use a taxane with bevacizumab at the moment. In fairness, there are many others who disagree with that, and you know I think this is a matter of style. Lisa?
3: I agree. It's actually really relatively seldom that Eric and I disagree, and I don't disagree with anything that he says, except that I would say that I do add bevacizumab to cape when response is what I'm trying to get to. So, I mean, I think that was what I took away even at the time from Kathy Miller's first study, which was the third line setting. And I think that actually played a big role in the absence of the primary endpoint being achieved if you're looking for time to progression then i certainly don't promise that and i don't look for it but in a patient where you're trying to achieve response either because of explosive visceral disease or because of symptoms i do add it in with capecitabine i think the question about the hormone receptor element is worth a brief comment one of the things that came out of ecog 2100 with weekly paclitaxel and bevacizumab was the idea that if anything the ER and PR negative subset, who were by design also HER2 negative or a triple negative subset, seem to benefit quite strongly from the addition of bevacizumab to paclitaxel. And that has been, including by me, considered as a possible targeted therapy for the triple negative group, which gives us something outside of chemo. I think the Excalibur study showed, if anything, kind of a reversal of that with a stronger impact in ER positive, which does not mean it doesn't have an impact in ER negative, but it does raise the point about subset analyses and being careful about assumptions you make about them.
0: Eric, when you use capecitabine, in this case alone, what's the dose and schedule? What are your thoughts about the seven-day-on, seven-day-off regimen that Memorial's looking at? Yeah.
2: I tend not to fuss about being too Calculating, if you will, with my dose of Cape cytobine. I look at somebody and I sort of get a sense of their size and get a sense of how well they've tolerated other therapies, and I give them some number of pills. I think that usually works out to be somewhere in the range of about 2,000 milligrams per meter squared per day, sometimes maybe a little bit lower than that. So I'm typically starting someone off either with six or seven 500-milligram pills a day, and I never use the 150-milligram pills ever. I don't think I've ever written a prescription for one outside of a trial. And seven days on, the Memorial Group has been testing this. I have not typically done that outside of a trial. That said, I do get a little flexible or creative with capecitabine scheduling depending on toxicity issues, and there are patients who I will treat 12 days on and 9 days off. There are patients rarely who I've treated continuously because they seem to tolerate it better at a lower dose. And maybe that's right and maybe it's wrong, but it's one of the things you can do pretty easily with an oral therapy. I think we do need a little more science here. just want to make one other comment, which is, you know, there has been some limited suggestion that capecitabine might actually be a drug that could work better in ER-positive than ER-negative breast cancer. It's been seen in one Japanese adjuvant trial, actually not with capecitabine, but with another oral fluoropyrimidine, and there are biologic hypotheses for that whether or not that'll turn out what to be What is the, the case. biologic
0: hypothesis Usually was you think about chemo ask me that
2: <laughs> <laughs> I think about chemo not working as well in ER positive it's sort of the reverse I think about chemotherapy not working as well in ER positive disease too although in the metastatic setting that has been hard to show and you know in spite of everything we know about adjuvant therapy and the relative benefits of adjuvant chemotherapy and ER positive versus ER negative disease. In the metastatic setting, if you look at either response rates or time to progression across a whole wide range of trials, it's really hard to show that there are huge differences in that situation. But it's a selected group, too. But typically. it's a selected group of patients, many of whom have already become resistant to endocrine therapy. And maybe Lisa, who is so biologically attuned, can comment on any hypotheses why capcidibine might be better. Are you familiar with that? Well, that's
3: evidence? a nice lateral. Yeah. Thank you very
2: much. It has something to do with TP, though, right? It yeah, does.
3: TPS or TPI. No, I'm not going to be able to shed much light on well, this one. I'm sorry. I failed
0: initially, so it's... <laughs> so no. getting back to the practical, and we'll hear a follow-up in this case, but you both talked about a taxane and BEV as first-line therapy. Let's assume the patient's never had a taxane. Eric, what kind of taxane is it likely
2: to be? For me, it's likely to be weekly paclitaxel, as was given in the ECARG trial.
0: And is that because the science and the clinical aspect or reimbursement because of the issue
2: of NAB? It's not a reimbursement issue for us. We've used NAB paclitaxel to a limited extent, typically in patients who have had problems with hypersensitivity with paclitaxel. And we've used NAB Paclitaxel on trial, but we still use plain old Paclitaxel most of the time. Lisa?
3: We typically use weekly Paclitaxel with Bevacizumab also. And similarly, we use NAB Paclitaxel when there is either a reason to adopt a different schedule. So in every three-week schedule, that would be my preferred one. Or if the patient doesn't tolerate weekly Paclitaxel for another reason.
2: Or if you really want to avoid steroids entirely, right. although the fact is that after some number of weeks, one can often avoid steroids even with weekly paclitaxel, but if from the get-go you want to avoid steroids, you have somebody who's got diabetes or other contraindications or relative contraindications, that would be a reason. So what happened with this patient?
1: Well, we had actually tried to put her on a study using NAB of and... Within the couple of weeks it took to get all the paperwork done and so forth, her LFTs were too high to go on study. And at that point, I said, well, I want to treat you with the same drugs off study. You know, you kind of sold the study to the patient, and now you're going to say, I'm going to use a different drug. I think that's disconcerting to patients when they're both available. Basically, just guesstimated with the weekly NAB at 100 per meter squared. I wasn't really sure how well she would do with her LFTs being somewhat elevated, but that's what we tried with the BEV within a week Her symptoms were resolved within three weeks. Her LFTs had resolved. She did get neutropenic week two. We had to give her leucine that week and skipped the NAB that week. The second cycle, we had to skip week three again for low blood counts. And then I dropped her to 80 per meter, and she's stayed on that schedule since. But it was a very rapid symptomatic improvement, and by scan, she's had a modest improvement. I don't know. She's now about month, four or five, and
0: has stable disease. Any comments from the group in terms of this? We talked a little bit about this issue of selection of a taxane and particularly the issue of NAB. On the outside, I'm kind of trying to tease out this thing about where is the reimbursement and the cost coming in, where is the science coming in, how big a deal is the steroids and the infusion, and sort of how does it all come together. Bill, what's your approach? Yeah, I'm a very heavy user of Abraxane. I find the weekly program in metastatic disease to be very well tolerated, and I don't like the steroids, and patients usually, I've never done a, Same patient, get Taxol, and then switch them over to the NAB. But in comparisons, the performance status, the response rates are good, and the tolerability is wonderful.
1: I'm intrigued that no one has mentioned docetaxel as part of their Taxane choices, whereas I know certainly up north in Illinois that's been fairly commonly used, and there had been at least some early data that suggested a modest benefit over paclitaxel in metastatic disease. So I was just intrigued that that hadn't come up, and I was wondering what people's thoughts about using it were. I think some of the toxicity issues are considerable, but I just wanted to get people's thoughts about whether you feel that taxanes are interchangeable. Or not?
2: A lot of it probably depends on schedule. So that if you compare every three-week docetaxel with every three-week paclitaxel, mm-hmm. and that's what was addressed in the randomized trial that I think mm-hmm. you're referring to, in fact, there was some advantage for docetaxel. We also know that weekly paclitaxel is actually superior to every three-week paclitaxel. And that weekly paclitaxel regimen hasn't been compared in the metastatic setting with every three week docetaxel. I suspect that they're very similar from an efficacy standpoint. We do know that there doesn't seem to be any advantage with docetaxel giving it on a weekly basis. So if you want to use every three week docetaxel, I think that's an entirely reasonable regimen. I think if you're going to use paclitaxel, you probably should give it weekly. I think if you're going to use nab paclitaxel, I don't know what regimen to use. It's been used weekly, it's been used every three weeks. And at this point, I think that we are really lacking any definitive data that weekly NAB paclitaxel is better than weekly paclitaxel. I think we know that every three-week NAB paclitaxel is better than every three-week paclitaxel.
3: You could probably make the argument that NAB paclitaxel given at any schedule and docetaxel and weekly paclitaxel are all better than Q3-week paclitaxel.
0: But what about the data those? that Bill Gratishar presented at San Antonio though, and Onasco, randomized phase two, looking at weekly NAB versus Q3-week docetaxel?
3: Well, I think that suggests that NAB paclitaxel, it wasn't designed to be a definitive study, but may be advantageous over docetaxel. I find docetaxel is a perfectly reasonable regimen, particularly in the setting of a patient who has previously had paclitaxel, for example, recently in the adjuvant setting, and you want to try and use another one with a potential for non-cross resistance. My own take is that of all of these regimens, docetaxel in the long term has additional toxicities that I find hard to ameliorate and that I think affect the quality of life more likely than the other ones. And that may be largely anecdotal, but that's been my impression. She has probably
1: 25 to 35% of her liver involved with tumor, but normal LFTs now. Would you consider going back to another hormonal therapy, or would you go on to Zalota after this progression?
2: She's been on this for how long? She's
1: been on it about five months now.
2: And is the disease continuing to improve?
1: No. We've not repeated scans, but... Long story short, it's probably stable disease. Some response, and probably stable disease.
2: Now, this is always where I have a conversation with the patient about how long to continue therapy. And from the pre-bevacizumab era, what we know from randomized trials is that the longer you continue therapy, the longer time to progression, but it doesn't affect overall survival. So it's a balancing act between disease control and quality of life. Ultimately, if disease is stable for long enough, most people want to stop therapy rather than continue it indefinitely. And when you get to that point, I think you could think about trying to put her on another hormonal therapy to see if that would help maintain the stable disease longer. But I think the real issue is how long you're going to continue the chemotherapy.
3: Well, you might make the argument that the tamoxifen or teromiphene that she was on previously was suppressing her disease because 16 months after you stopped it, there it came. Yeah. So you may get disease control. Yeah, I mean, she
1: was put on hormonal therapy now for about eight months after when she relapsed and then had... Well,
3: she was put on an aromatase inhibitor and then fulvestrin, right? Femara and... Right,
2: Femara. Yeah, Would yeah. you keep her on bevacizumab alone? <laughs> I mean, you have to be asked that question. I mean, yeah, I usually don't, but I don't think we have an answer to that question.
0: Dude, you're a trial guy. That's what they did in the trial. In the trial, when they stopped, if they had to stop the chemo. They kept the bev
2: going, didn't they? Anybody? Antonio? Skip? Yes. Skip says yes. So anyhow, well, although actually, you know, in the study, there was more neuropathy in the combination arm because people tended to continue it for longer. At times I have done both, but I don't think we have an answer. Lisa?
3: I agree. I also have done it when you wanted to give a chemotherapy holiday and the patient was tolerating it well, but there's very little data.
0: How's this patient doing in terms of neuropathy?
3: Neuropathy hasn't really been a
1: problem. She says that if now, it's less maybe than at first. Her husband sees that she's fatiguing more easily than she really was aware, but she's just had various irritating complications, UTIs and things that have just kind of laid her low, and she doesn't feel as well as she did, obviously, on hormonal therapy. I guess my question was, when you see kind of explosive disease on hormonal therapy, how often do you feel like you can go back to hormonal therapy and get control again, or does that pretty much declare hormone resistance when you see it within about a three, four-month period of time where Cass went from a normal liver to a Quite a bit of disease in our liver.
2: I wouldn't have a huge amount of confidence in hormonal therapy again, but once more, as Lisa suggested, maybe it'll help control the disease. One of the reasons if you stop chemotherapy, you might add a hormone at that point is that I suspect you're not going to feel comfortable doing it when she has frank progression. So if you're going to do it ever again, this is when you're going to do it. And unfortunately, I'm not sure we're ever going to have an answer to the question that you asked, because although there are questions being asked about the continuation of Bevacizumab at progression, I don't know that anyone is asking a question of stopping versus continuing bevacizumab to prolong progression. Although these people are used to doing it in colon cancer with the
0: OptiMox type strategy where they stop the x platin, keep the bevacizumab and usually the 5-FU going.